Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. When is it my turn to drive? I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, your mechanic. Which leaves you in the driver's seat, listener. Where are we going? quote is by Carol Burnett. Only I can change my life. No one can do it for me. Last week, we talked through the college transition in 2020, which obviously is way different than prior years. This week, we're taking a turn to a new subject, the rates of divorce. A few weeks ago, Kim saw a post on Facebook, which asked why our marriages aren't lasting like our grandparents did. So we're going to try and break this down a little bit. First of all, let's assume we're comparing millennials with their grandparents, which are typically part of the greatest generation. So what are the marriage and divorce rates between those generations? And are millennial marriages actually less successful than our predecessors? So trying to figure out who in any particular year, what generation is being represented by the statistics is a little bit misleading. What we can talk about is within certain decades, here was the marriage rate, so the people who got married in that particular year or decade, and here is the divorce rate, obviously two different sets of folks. And the average marriage lasts somewhere between six and seven and a half years before it goes into divorce. That's the the central number, right? People, of course, go longer and shorter, but that's the average number. Six to seven years is when people get divorced. So if I picked a year like 1945, which was a peak year, by the way, 45 and 46 were peak years for marriage, there were 18 marriages per thousand people in the population. And the divorce rate was at four people per thousand. That's kind of amazing. But comparing those two things is a little bit different because we're not actually looking at the same marriage over time and its divorce, like what predicts a strong marriage from what predicts a marriage is likely to go to divorce. What we're just looking at is population statistics. The interesting thing as I looked over the statistics is the rate of marriage and the rate of divorce tend to create about a 40 to 55% divorce rate. So somewhere between 40 and 50% of marriages end up in divorce if you look at the statistics that way. Over the 100 years that they reported, I have another set of of stats on this uh, that's just from 2000 to 2018. So let's just look at 2018. So this would be people who got married in 2018. Those are likely to be millennials. Right. Because Ben, you got married in 2018, right? I got married in 2016. Well, interestingly enough, let's look at 2016 since you got married there. The rate of marriage was seven per 1,000 population. That's actually high. But it is lower than the 1945 number. Which you did say was a record peak. Right. And this is right after World War II. All of the soldiers are returning home. If they survived, you would bet that they would want to get married. And that was a big push at that time, too. That's the whole era of heteronormative marriage with 2.5 children and picket fence. and That we right, talked that about in the American dream. Right. Yep. So 2016, uh, seven per thousand population married. 
Also in 2016, so it's hard to divorce the year that you marry, but in 2016, three per thousand population divorced. Okay, so that's a little under half. A little under half. And and if you look at each of these years in the statistics table, it's anywhere between like 40, 45% and 50, 55%. And again, I think that's a false calculation because the people who divorce in a year are not the same people who marry in a year. So we're comparing apples and oranges. Yeah, that I get your point there. Mm. Also, if it's consistently like 40 to 50% across like multiple years, right? So like 2014, 2015, 2016, <clears throat> 2017 are all 40 to 50%. You know, that does start to include the marriages before. Yes. Here's another part of the of the thing. It's the rate of divorce per thousand population, not per thousand folks married. True. So some of those people could have never gotten married. Right. Which would lower the number of divorced per thousand population. So the percentage that we use to reference of like 50% of couples get divorced isn't really true even in the slightest as far as we can tell from the statistics that we get or may not be true may not be true in the way that it is delivered. Fair. So as we just demonstrated in the year 2016, it's roughly about 45%, right? Comparing people who got married to people who got divorced. Right. But I don't know that you can make that comparison. It's an easy one to make because the table lines up. And right. You can just do the math. <laughs> but I think, though, if the rate has been around... 40 to 50% or 40 to 55% for a hundred years with, you know, some statistical shifts, but not, it's not like it spiked up to 70% for two decades and then dropped to 20% at some point. It's been relatively steady. Not over the hundred years. Since 2000 to 2018, yes. Okay. If we go over a hundred years, it was only 11%. From 1867 to about 1910, it was somewhere between 11 and 15%. But wait, roughly. so the, the greatest generation, what is, what's that year range? Is that, that, that can't be that year range. No. So the greatest generation would have been born roughly 1915. So okay. if we look from 1915 to 1945... Right, which would have been when the greatest generation came home from World War II, the divorce rate starts to climb from that early 10% or so at the turn of the 20th century up to about to 20%. But wait, hold on. So 1915 is when they would have been born? Yes. So yeah, we should look you'd have at to when... look at like 1933 when they're 18. And going off to war. And so the marriage rate at that well, not point. all of them though. But I, I would grant it, but yeah, so the marriage rate in 1934 drops dramatically to eight out of a thousand okay. uh, before it had been up around nine and a half to 10 bouncing around and it drops to eight. Why? All the guys disappear, right? A huge number of guys went into the military at that point. A lot of women went in the military too, by the way, unsung heroes of World War II. And then, then you see it rise, start rising uh, from marriage 1935, both marriage and divorce from okay. 1935 through 1945, it looks like where the peak is 46 is the peak. And that divorce rate is 22% from 1935 to 1945. 
from that point, 1960 or so through 1970, we get what we start to see now, which is about 45 to 55% if you compare the divorce rate in a single year to the marriage rate in a single year. So what if we do away with worrying about the generations? Overall, the trend is that the divorce rate is going up. Yes. Or perhaps it's leveled off, but started out very, very low around 10% in the late 1800s. Yep, through the early 1900s. And then around the time of our grandparents' generation, started to climb to maybe like 20-30%. And now, post the 70s or so, is closer to 50%. Is that an accurate summary of the numbers you're looking at? It's a reasonable one, yes. So, so in any case, your basic tenet is correct. At the turn of the 20th century, we were at about 11% divorce rate using that particular calculation. So it, would we say, based on this, that the Facebook post has um, some accuracy, that our marriages are less successful and less long-lasting than our grandparents? Or do we refute that? I would say they have the potential and the risk to be more fragile than the marriages of our grandparents, of your grandparents. So we are neither confirming nor denying the statement made by Facebook. There are a whole lot of millennials who have gotten married and they have very strong marriages. Well, there are also a lot of couples that are together and not married and therefore not part of the statistics of marriage. Sure. And we have new kinds of marriages now. We've we've recognized uh, homosexual marriage as of 2012. And many of those are incredibly stable. Right. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to make these blanket statements, but I will tell you that the fragility of marriage is greater now than it was 100 years ago in 1920. All right. So why is that? Well, a lot of things have changed over the years. I mean, surprise. When I was reading and researching about this, one of the things that was vocalized the strongest was the independence that women gained over the years. So not only did they really gain a voice in relationships and in society, they also began to be able to live financially independently of their husbands or of their families in general. And again, since same-sex marriage didn't really become legal until 2012, a lot of the older arguments for the increase in divorce is women's rights and being able to separate from a heterosexual relationship. There's also a lot less stigma about divorce than there has been in the past. It's also become easier over the years. So I know North Carolina has a no-fault divorce where you don't have to prove that one partner has done something against the marital contract. And it's given women the ability to separate from a partner who is not the best partner for them. The person might be struggling with alcoholism and it's created an extreme challenge in the relationship. There might be physical violence, domestic violence of any kind and things like that. And so part of the normalization of divorce has been the acceptance of leaving relationships that are unhealthy. That's a a good thing. Right. It is a good thing. And it it certainly has given people a way to create a life for themselves, as the quote from Carol Burnett would suggest. Just to give our listeners a sense, because many of them may not know what fault was versus no fault. So in traditional divorce was actually a criminal trial. It began as a criminal trial. You sued for divorce saying that your partner had 
broken the law. And the things that were grounds for a fault divorce were adultery, cruelty, desertion, confinement in prison. So you could divorce someone, a spouse that was imprisoned, physical incapacity. So if they were comatose or unable to care for you and incurable insanity. Oh, that, that one's my problem. Another thing to really note is that prior to 1960, refusing to have sex with your spouse was considered abandonment. So if a woman decided that they did not want to have sex with their husband, that was grounds for the husband to divorce her, which, as you were saying, Ben, could be viewed negatively and she might be viewed as a floozy. No, she would be not a floozy. Well, so yes, and the narrative of divorce, you know, if a woman was divorced by her husband, it was negative on her because a lot of the narratives was the the women needed to hold the marriage together. The woman was yeah. in charge of saving the marriage. I just mean the floozy term is specifically for being like promiscuous. So if she's not having sex, then she's kind of the opposite of a floozy. Right. So, I mean, if we go back even further, in 1949, there was a group called Divorcees Anonymous, founded by Samuel M. Starr, who was an attorney, and it was promising to provide women with advice on how to avoid divorce, because again, it was the woman's job to maintain the marriage. I'm suspicious. Right. And, you know, the advice books, the self-help books were all focused on what can a woman do to save the marriage. Oh, the 50s. Right. And it wasn't until in 1960, there was a landmark case. Uh, I believe it's Kraling versus Kraling because of that abandonment around not having sex. So this was overturning that. Correct. This is no longer Correct. a reason to divorce someone. Right. And then in 66, that's when they started to have conversations about the property in marriage. So things that had been acquired by both partners would have to be shared and divided during the divorce. Huh. It was huge for the women because prior to that, they were losing everything that they had. Apparently, we, we the U.S., do not have the highest rate of divorce. That would be the Maldives. Which was interesting to me because living in the U.S., I always assume that the U.S. has the highest rate of everything. At least of all bad things. <laughs> right. You do not. Um, well, there are a lot of things in the United States that we have high rates for. Even some good things. Yes, right. we have a high rate of happiness. No, that's not true, actually. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> oh, no. mm, I might disagree with that. Yeah, it's but not true. We're I think, in the bottom quartile. Right. I think one of the cool things within this is that divorce is no longer attributed to our moral compass. The blame for divorce is no longer on the women. So the women are no longer in charge of maintaining the marriage like it has been in the past. So the rate of divorce has definitely gone up. Correct. And we talked about that uh, a modern marriage might be at more risk of divorce for a variety of reasons. What are the reasons that we see more divorces now? Many of the same reasons. Infidelity, financial infidelity actually is a bigger cause now. Uh, Can you elaborate more on what that means? Financial infidelity. Mm -hmm. So hiding money 
from your spouse or spending money in a way that your spouse is not aware of or running up debt in a way that your spouse is not aware of. All of those. So think gambling, think stock market things where, you know, I get rich quick scheme comes along and you invest. And there are a whole lot of people now trying to steal your money that way as well. So that's financial infidelity. Sexual infidelity is the most common one. This is where you go out and have affairs with other people or animals. Yikes. Okay. <laughs> wow. That was a that was a Just left a, hand turn. A hard left. Well, I have been doing marital therapy for a long time and it's a it's a real thing. I believe you. That's but I'm also shocked. Yeah, well, 25 years ago I was shocked, but I'm no longer shocked by any of this stuff. <laughs> anymore. So those are typical ones. Also dealing with in-laws. So sometimes people get married, but they don't really separate from their family of origin. And that intrusion creates a, a dynamic that breaks up the marriage. Work is sometimes a thing where someone needs to move a lot and the other spouse doesn't want to move or keep changing their career to accommodate the partner. Well, and also spending excessive amounts of time at work and failing to be part of the marriage at that point right? Which is emotional infidelity, right? They're not present to share their emotions. And then of course, all of the abuses. This is still a very common thing in marriage, verbal abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse. All of those things are still a thing and they are a reason for divorce. They're no longer part of a court case in the sense of you're not, there's no fault in the divorce, but they are reasons for breaking it up and needing some kind of settlement between people. All of these things really come from not working with one another, not collaborating to find a life both of you want to live, which requires communication and conflict resolution. Kim's very skeptical about that statement. I agree with you on all of it except for abuse. The abuser is failing to communicate and collaborate. It's not the abused okay. e or yeah. abused person. It's the abuser who is, instead of communicating, becoming violent in any one of those ways. Okay. Hey, I accept now. Okay. You, you <laughs> thought I was blaming the victim, and, and that's not what I'm, I'm talking so about. I'm so used to hearing that that I immediately jump to it, and I'm like, you're wrong. You're right. Okay. We're good. <laughs> well, I, I'm right as long as you take it in that sense, that Correct. the person who's abusing is not using their words, is not finding a solution. Right. What um, they want is control. Uh, So these are the reasons for divorce now, and there's lots more of it because there's more ambiguity, there's more information, there's more stress, and there is greater certainty about life. What do you mean by that last one? So think about it. If your life is very simple and you don't have the internet, you don't have electronics, you don't have all of these distractions, you're raising animals or raising a farm or dealing with that kind of stuff, you're looking to survive every day and you need all the hands you can get to make life work. So you're pressed into finding collaborative and cooperative ways of being in the world. So are you saying there used to be greater certainty in life or there is now greater certainty? You said there used to be greater certainty certainty in life because there was less information and less choices. Okay. Okay. I thought you were saying now there was more certainty. Now there's too much information, too many choices. Too many choices. Right. And people people get overwhelmed. Well, and it's interesting because a lot of people also will argue that the reason we see so many divorces is because there's so many choices, but they don't tend to view it in the way that you're describing it. Most people will immediately jump to the infidelity and that 
we have so many choices in partners now that that's the reason we're seeing divorces. And I think part of my interest in creating this episode was also exploring that infidelity is not the only reason people get divorced. And I have helped a lot of couples who have experienced infidelities actually recover their marriage. Right. And that's also what I wanted to cover. Yeah. How, how do you save a relationship? talking to two experts here. Now, I, you know, we opened this episode, this is my fault, I guess, with a bunch of statistics, which we definitely don't know anything about. <laughs> but at least two of us do know things about saving relationships. I think a lot of it is you have, well, if we're specifically looking at saving a relationship, you have to go into it with the desire to save it. Some people will come into our into our offices because I've heard Dr. Azevedo talk about this before. They're just checking off a box before they get divorced. I'm here because, you know, my partner is making me. Divorce is really what I'm intending to do, but whatever, here I am. And if you're not here to work on it, we're not going to go anywhere because you're not going to put in the effort, you're not going to make any behavioral changes, and your marriage will not change. So you really have to come into this with the desire to make change, with the desire to make this relationship work. That's really the first step at any of this. It also requires you as an individual to take responsibility for your actions and how this has affected the relationship. You have to understand that your partner has their point of views, their experiences, and how your behavior has impacted them. And you have to realize that your behavior is part of this and it's both ways. And that's, that's a huge thing is owning up to what you have done in your marriage or what you have not done and acknowledging that your partner feels some sort of way and that they're entitled to feel that type of way. And you have to talk about it. Communication. And we have to find a pathway around that because your behavior may not be outside of the norm, but the reaction that your partner has is because of something from their past, their, their filter. I mean, I can give an example. When I was married to y'all's mother, very early <laughs> on, this would have been... Are yeah. you not anymore? <laughs> when did you, that I happen? I, I feel like I talked to her like four days ago. <laughs> we it, were still it, married it, as of then. Oh my One God. never knows. It's a day-by-day day thing. Yikes. I, what I was saying, though, is uh, this was in the very first year of our marriage. So I had moved her down to Knoxville, Tennessee, because I was in graduate school. This is the farthest away she'd been from her parents. I like to cook. I had a salmon poacher, which is pretty weird for a 22-year-old man to have. But hey, I had it. Beautiful clay poacher. Had a salmon embossed on the top. It was beautiful. Apparently, we had had salmon, although I don't remember any parts of this. When she was washing it and I was away in classes, it slipped out of her hands and it broke. So when I came through the door, coming back from classes, she came around the corner and said, love, we need to talk. Ouch. That's all she said. We need to talk. Four words. And apparently when she said that, I went ballistic. I started yelling and screaming. I don't remember any of this. Not one bit of it. You flipped your lid. I flipped my lid. I started yelling and screaming. I was speaking in Portuguese and English and very loud. And your mother was wonderful. She went, I don't know who this is. It looks a lot like the exorcist. I'm going to get out of the way of the spray of pea soup. And let me give you a glass of water. Come in, sit down. Because right? that's what cures everything. And she did calm me down. 
at that point, I do remember talking to her, but not remembering the time. So there's probably about 15 to 30 minutes of time completely gone from my memory. It took us another six to eight months to figure out that it was the trigger of we need to talk. Those words by themselves, that behavior from her is not abnormal. There's nothing wrong with that behavior. Those were the words, though, used by my father before I was punished or demeaned or humiliated or lots of other things that happened when I was a kid because I had gotten something wrong. That was the trigger. I was never going to be treated that way again in my life. So when she said that, she stopped being my wife and I went back into history and I was going to defend myself from an enemy that was no longer there. So I tell that story only because you don't know if your behavior is going to have the effect that you intend. Mama wanted a conversation. That's all she wanted. I want to highlight a part of this story for our listener because you went over it very quickly, but you said it took how many months for the two of you to figure this out? Um, six to nine months. It was So this was the fall quarter of my first year in graduate school, and it wasn't until the summer. But I just want to emphasize six to nine months. This was not 30 minutes later you sat down, had a conversation, realized, oh, this kicked me back in history. Like I was, this is my reaction, whatever. This took dozens of conversations over months of time for this one thing. And I think that's important to emphasize because it's not a matter of just being able to communicate once or like, oh, we had a fight and then we just resolve it the next day or the same day or in a week. Like this stuff can take a long time. And it's that constant communication, constantly learning about each other that helps preserve and build and strengthen a marriage. It also took personal introspection. Papa had to stop and think about what was happening and choosing to look at why did I react that way. Also honoring Janice's point of view. When she described my behavior to me, I didn't refute it because I couldn't remember it, but it would have been easy, right? I could have said, no, I didn't do any of those things because I didn't remember it, so it didn't really happen. I chose, well, and I say I chose not to do that eventually. <laughs> it wasn't this immediate. This is part of the six months. Right. Yeah, it was, it was part of the process. And she had patience with you, and yes. you had patience with her, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of trust involved in that. You know, Having somebody say to you, wow, you just like, lost your cool and yelled at me in a different language for 15 minutes and you not remember that, but trust that they're not lying to you about it, that right. they're not making stuff up. That's a huge trust thing too. Yes. It's a great story. It's a great example. And I just want to emphasize for our listeners that it's not like a quick overnight, easy thing. Right. This is a lot of trust. This is a lot of communication. It's a lot of introspection. Like you said, Kim, it's personal responsibility. I mean, this is all the stuff that we talk about all the time on the show over a six-month period to resolve one event. Right. Yeah, four words. Well, and it's interesting because those four words trigger a lot of people. Like, I've always found that interesting. We need to talk. hits so many people in so many different ways. I mean, it, it gets me. I get so anxious because I'm like, I've done something wrong. I need to know what it is right now. It's just interesting to me that 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 particular phrase hits so many people in so many different ways. Yes. Are there more ways to save a relationship? You got to come in willing to fix it. I got that part. You got to come in willing to look at your own behavior and how it's contributing regardless of your intent. Got that. You have to put energy into changing your behavior, doing something different than you did before. That's tough. That, that is tough. You have to take divorce off the table. 
because as long as you've got a foot out the door, you really can't work on your marriage. So you really have to turn toward your partner and begin the process of working. There are lots of skills that Kim and I teach every single day that will help you get better at your marriage. Or relationship in general. And remember that divorce is not necessarily a solution. It's just an invitation to a whole new set of problems. It really, really is. Because if you've had a behavior that has gotten in the way of you experiencing sustained love and commitment and caring in your life, you're going to take that behavior with you to the next relationship. Mm. If you, in your experience, both of you, if you have a couple where one partner does kind of have a foot out the door, like they're pretty like, oh, I'm ready for a divorce, but they've agreed to come to therapy and the other is willing to put energy into this. Is there hope? Is that like, can you turn someone around from seeing divorce as an option to kind of putting it away and turning back to the relationship? No one can turn anyone else around. The individual can turn themselves around. And that part is hopeful. And you can offer options. As a matter of fact, a uh, therapist named Bill Doherty developed a process called discernment counseling, which is about having those two agendas, one person wanting to leave, the other person wanting to keep the marriage. And discernment counseling helps a couple speak to one another about the truth of the desire that they have. This is why I want to leave. This is why I want to stay. And to do that in such a way that they are better heard by each other and perhaps even influenced. And some I do discernment counseling. I'm a certified discernment counselor. And I have helped several couples hear one another well enough that they have chosen to turn toward one another and work on the marriage. Even that doesn't always work out. Sometimes after marital therapy for a while, they say, you know, I care about you. You're important to me, but not enough for us to be married. And the marriage ends. Sometimes the person who wanted the marriage hears the reasons why the other person needs to leave and accepts that. And they can divorce with honor and respect, which is really what I'm targeting. I either want a marriage filled with honor and respect or a divorce filled with honor and respect because Mm -hmm. it's the disrespect and the dishonor that creates so much pain in the world. Kim, you got any thoughts on that? It's interesting because I have that conversation a lot with couples who come in of, are we in it to win it? Or, you know, are we in it to check off the last box? Because that really shapes what we're doing in this room. And it really shapes if I know that you're going to put effort in. And I can tell, like, there are couples where they're not doing it. You know, I can hand them all of these tools, but if they don't go home and engage in these behaviors... Why are they coming back other than I'm a cool person to talk to? This is like reason 3,472 why I would be a bad therapist is I would just be like, no, everyone's staying together. We're all (laughs) staying together. (laughs) We can beat this. We can do it. (laughs) And as a therapist, it's it's not my choice. It's always their choice. I think it's easy for an outsider, me, in this case, to see it as sort of a a pass-fail situation, right? Like, did you save the marriage or did you not save the marriage? And it's like your responsibility now, even though it's not. And what you said about like, what you really want is either a marriage with honor and respect or a divorce with honor and respect makes a lot more sense. The divorce could be a success if it's done well and with honor and respect and the parties leave amicably. Yeah, I was going to say more whole. I don't know if that's true. But like the other thing you said about like, if you have problems in a marriage and you get a divorce and you don't 
deal with any of those problems. You're just going to bring those to your next relationship and the next one after that. And that's like a really scary thing to think about, especially when I think about how few people are probably aware of that. And it's almost like a weird, like if you get a divorce, you should be like required to go to personal therapy, almost like a um, like a parole thing or something. I don't know. <laughs> Prior to getting into another relationship. Like you're not allowed to date until you've gone to like X weeks of you personal. You, you I just want to fix everybody. <laughs> you want to hear a funny is that, uh, you know, I've been doing this for three decades. So there have been, I don't know, maybe a dozen, couple dozen people who have been with me and they've gone through a divorce. They've gotten to that spot where they were able to let go of one another. They get into another relationship and before they'll commit to marrying that new person, they come to me for marital therapy, which is really fascinating. That, that's a level of self-awareness. And it's also a huge measure of trust in me that they would come sure. back. But I, I just think that's cool because they actually want to do what you're talking about, Ben. They, they don't want to make the same mistakes again. They found somebody that they care about and they don't want to fall into old patterns. Well, and also making sure that the partner that they're with now understands that they do want this to work, right? Because some people who have a divorce in their history get looked at differently by their partner. And, you know, there's a fear that's within that. And I see that with some of my friends who are divorced and are trying new relationships I also want to make a note of there are a lot of different types of requests for help for marriages, not just marital therapy. There's pastoral help, there's mediation, but there are things that are not basic therapy like what Don you and can, I do. Uh, you can call up old Banjo and he's determined. Yes, Ben will fix it. He's got you. a lot of willpower, yeah. very little expertise, but a lot of stubbornness. He will hype you, hype you up, but... <laughs> Again, like therapy is not the only option. It's just what we are trained to do. But there are other other people who will do their best to help you look at what your relationship is and what it can or cannot be. Well, my takeaway from this episode is that you need to be a better statistician than us to accurately figure out whether our grandparents' relationships are actually longer lasting and more successful than ours. But we all agree that rates of divorce have gone up from the early part of the 1900s. Luckily, at least two of us are experts on divorce and marriage, and we also covered why we see more divorces now than then and what it takes to save a marriage. If you're a regular listener, you're probably not shocked to learn that it takes great communication, trust, and personal responsibility. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the show, please give us some stars on iTunes. And if you have any questions or thoughts about relationships, email us at questions at afpsych.com. Until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to the Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at RelationshipRoadTrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at AzevedoFamilyPsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. 
Bearcave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Thank you.